All right, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. Uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit unique. It's going to be purely Q&A. So I recognize that this was episode eight, kind of signifies two full months since the inception of the podcast. And Q&A podcasts are kind of some of my favorite episodes from other podcast hosts. So it's something I've always intended on doing. But I wasn't really sure how fast the podcast was going to grow or if I would even have an audience big enough to support a Q&A episode. Um, but based on all the feedback I've had on the episodes thus far, I was like, you know what? Every two months is a really nice kind of round number to have a Q&A episode. So I think what we're going to do is like every eighth episode will be a, a dedicated Q&A episode. And I was, I'm, I'm super pumped with all the great questions. In fact, we got so many great questions. I'm going to ditch all the other elements of the podcast this week. And we're just going to spend the full hour digging into the questions because I didn't want to not answer anybody's. I really appreciate the time and the thoughtfulness that everybody put forth into these questions. So before we dive into that, as usual, I want to thank everybody for their support, likes, comments, subscribes on all the platforms. Greatly appreciate it. If you could take a moment and do that again for this episode, that would really help the podcast kind of grow and, and move up the rankings. As always, if you want to get in touch, jay at mindfulhunter.com. Website is mindfulhunter.com. Instagram, mindful underscore hunter. YouTube, mindful underscore hunter. That's the primary methods you can use to reach me. If you got questions, comments, concerns, anything you want to chat about, just let me know. So we're going to dive right in. So I, I got all the questions from my Instagram and I've just got them on my phone here and we're just going to go through them one by one. Now, one quick note, I realized the, the rain gear episode had gone a little bit long last week. And so I actually forgot to do all the questions that people had submitted for that episode. So what I'm going to start out with is some of the leftover questions from last week that I never got a chance to address. So Mark Swagner says, budget jacket and pants or premium jacket and weight on the pants. I answered this in the podcast, but in case you didn't listen to that episode, I would go premium jacket and weight on the pants. And the pro tip there is go buy the Frog Togs Ultralight 2 system. It only costs 30 bucks. It's not going to last you forever, but it will totally bridge the gap between when you can afford those more expensive pants. And you hit the nail right on the head. I think that the jacket is a far more important piece to nail right out of the gate than the pants are. You're going to use it more often. It's more versatile. I even use it as a windbreak on days. So um, that's my answer to that particular question. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. Cody Dean, how to wash. This is a really great question. And I actually, I kind of briefly mentioned the delicate sensitivities of, of Gore-Tex, but I didn't actually talk about how to wash it. So you want to be very careful with any type of breathable membranes, and you're going to want to buy Nick Wax, I believe sells a product called Tech Wash. There's some other ones on the market. If you're in the States, go to REI, or you can go to Amazon. If you're in Canada, go into Mech. And you're going to buy a technical gear washing detergent, and it will be built specifically for highly technical fabrics. And then just wash it regularly. That being said, if I'm being honest, I've never washed my rain gear. I will wash soft shells with breathable membranes, but the, my rain gear itself, I've never washed. And that's probably not a great thing. So maybe I'll put that on my, on my to-do list. So yeah, tech wash to wash your Gore-Tex. 
quietest rain gear. Oh, I should say people's names. That was that was Cody Dean. Thanks, Cody. Up next is uh, Jay Frost Nine. Quietest rain gear that does not compromise staying dry. So there is actually one unique solution to that particular problem, and it's going to be the Thunderhead series from Sitka. So as I mentioned last week, there's three items in the Sitka rain gear lineup, the Cloudburst, the Thunderhead, and the Stormfront. The Cloudburst being the more lightweight, Stormfront being the more heavy duty. Right in the middle is the Thunderhead. Now it's slightly heavier than the Stormfront. So the Stormfront jacket's 22 ounces. The Thunderhead jacket is 25 ounces. But what they've done is they've essentially taken their breathable rain gear technology and put another layer of like a brushed polyester. I don't know if anybody's ever worn the mountain jacket by Sitka. There's some other soft shells that have this. It's like, yeah, brushed polyester is technically what it is, but it's a soft, quiet coating that goes on the jacket. So they've essentially just taken a rain jacket and laminated it with this brushed polyester. So that would hands down, that's going to be the quietest rain gear on the planet. I would take a second and think about the circumstances you're going to be in though, because it's pretty rare that you would actually execute a stock in the rain. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Still hunting blacktail is the best example that I can think of. Um, but other than that, just be very clear with yourself. Like, is this something I really need? Um, Cause even if you're rifle hunting, if you're two, three, 400 yards from something, does it matter if you're rain gear crinkles? Not really if you're doing spot and stock. So I would just take a, take a minute and, and kind of think about what you really need from your rain gear in that regard. Uh, Aiden Peters says first layered clothing and then uh, backcountry own unknown follows up with, should you layer down when putting on rain gear because of the less breathable outer layer? And I'm going to kind of mention those in tandem as a general rule, I adhere to a three layer system. I will have a very light layer next to skin. And let me know if you want me to do a whole clothing episode about how I approach clothing in general. I'll probably just do it anyways. Um, but I have a next to skin layer that would be quite light and quite breathable. That's always been Merino for me. I'm going to experiment with synthetic on this next goat hunt. And then after that, you're going to have a kind of internal insulating layer. This could be a fleece product or for example, on the goat hunt, I'm going to take the Kelvin active jacket. It serves the same purpose as a puffy jacket, but it's much thinner and has more athletic properties. Like it breathes better and it moves with you better and it's quieter. And then you're going to have some kind of shell or some kind of outer wind block. Uh, that could be the Sitka mountain jacket. It could be a rain jacket. It could be a variety of things. Now, all of that being said, 90% of the time, if I'm putting on a rain jacket, I'm going to strip off everything except my inner layer. The best piece of advice I ever got about gear and hiking is that you should leave the trailhead cold. If you're warm at the truck, like I'll even take it one step forward further. If you're comfortable at the truck, you have too many clothes on. You should be cold at the truck. And then 10 minutes into your hike, your body temperature is going to come up and you're going to hit that comfort. And then you're going to have few enough layers on that your body, your system will be able to evacuate 
that moisture and that heat from inside and you're not going to sweat out all your gear. If you're warm when you leave the trailhead, 10 minutes in, you're going to be a sweaty pig. And that it happens all the time. And then you got to stop and everybody takes off a bunch of gear. And it's like, what the fuck, guys? You should know better. So nine times out of 10, I, I'm trying to leave the truck cold. Unless it's a super short hike and we're just going up to the top of a glassing knob or something like that, I want to leave the truck cold. When I put rain gear on, 99% of the time, I'm going to go with that super thin next to skin layer and then my raincoat because it is so insulative, not from like an insulation perspective, but from the fact that it stops the transport of air from one area to another area. And it really, even though it's breathable, it keeps it all in there. You tend to overheat more quickly. So that's my answer. Same thing with pants. If I'm going to wear the pants, I'm going like boxers or long johns. That's it. Very rarely. Like I'm going to go ahead and say, I can't even remember a time in the last five years when I left my hunting pants on and put my rain pants on over top. It would have to be minus 30 degrees for me to want to do something like that. So yes, wearing rain gear will require you to wear fewer underlayers as a general rule. All right, Backcountry Unknown follows up with another one. What brand of hunting or non-hunting jacket will last the longest before wetting through? So I'm going to go ahead and say anything that's non-breathable. So this is going to be your rubberized Heli Hansen stuff um, or any pure, like any of the fishing stuff. I have some like, um, is it called Gundersons or Gunsons? Um, it's meant for use on like crab boats and shit like that. It is 100% waterproof. That saying it will also be 100% sweat proof. So you will wet out from the inside before you wet out from the outside. Um, I, I don't, I don't really know if that answers your question, but I would adjust my perspective. My concern is not Okay, there is a situation, if you were doing spot and stock and you were going to be sitting up on top of a mountain all day, glassing, moving very little, at that point, I would want some type of rubberized, 100% waterproof rain system. And if that if it was, if that was the situation, I would be buying something by Heli Hansen, just because they're the brand that I trust the most. So Noah asks, are there any poncho or large anorak options that work or pants, jacket, pack cover? For life. Okay. The only piece of gear that I can think of that falls into this particular category is the Bivinorak by Hilleberg. So Hilleberg has a really interesting piece of gear that is a bivy and a rain jacket, like a bivy sack and a rain jacket all in one. And it's like a really long, like there's no pants to it, but it's like a trench coat style rain jacket with big loopy sleeves but it also transitions into a bivy sack. So you can sleep in it at night or you can wear it as a rain jacket during the day. I've heard really positive reviews on this piece of gear from a couple of like pretty diehard dudes whose opinion I trust a lot. I don't have one, so I can't put my personal stamp of approval on it. But if you're looking for something in that kind of market, that's what I would recommend taking a closer look at. Other than that, I don't really have anything that I would recommend for, for life. As much as I bashed on the first light gear, it's actually quite durable. Um, it's lasted me a long time. I'm not super impressed with the quality of the rain gear itself. And when I say that, I'm specifically referencing that magical ability to stay waterproof while 
respecting breathability. I don't think it does a great job at that. It's okay, but it is a very, it is very durable rain gear and it stands up. So, um, I think to be honest, like getting five to 10 years at a rain gear, you, you know, getting 10 years at a rain gear is not unheard of. You're only going to be wearing it for like, I mean, what? For most people, 10, 10 days a year, if like how many hunts a year do most hunters even do? Like most guys probably feel lucky to get out on like one or two big hunts a year. And if you, if you take care of your stuff, you should be getting 10 years out of most of your gear. What's going to fuck your gear is sun. So like most of your shelters are going to take more of a shit kicking than your actual gear. If you take care of your gear. All right. So that's all the leftover questions for rain gear. So now what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into that questions that people actually posted this week. So Greg Johnson asks tactics for different species. What works better for some and not for others? Now, this is a very interesting question and one I'm not really sure how to approach because not only are there different tactics for species, but there's different tactics for species that are the same, but are in different circumstances. Like elk is a very good example. Like there's a strong argument to say that you hunt elk differently in different regions. And I know some people have their like diehard system and this is how I hunt elk no matter where I go. I don't think I, I necessarily believe that. I think I think you need to adapt to the circumstances that you find yourself in. Like if there's a lot of pressure, um, bulls may be more call shy. I mean, I, I hunted elk for three years on Haida Gwaii and I never heard a bugle. I'm not saying the elk on Haida Gwaii don't bugle, but they sure as fuck don't bugle as much as the bulls in Wyoming. I can guarantee you that. So does calling work as good on a place like Haida Gwaii as it does in Wyoming? I don't think it does because I don't think those animals, because they've been secluded, I don't think they kind of communicate with the same patterns that that the other elk that they've been separated from do. And that's just based on my own personal observations. Now, let's just talk in general, and I'll, I'll limit myself to the species that I've actually had success with. Okay. So we're going to talk for the most part, blacktail deer, mule deer, and elk. Okay. Let's start with blacktail deer. Cause that's where I cut my teeth hunting. I feel like it's definitely not the animal I know the most about, but it's the animal I've spent the most time hunting. And if you're in a place like British Columbia, still hunting is going to be your primary method of hunting, mostly because you don't have any other options. You cannot spot and stalk black-tailed deer in the vast majority of British Columbia. Um, there's a buddy of mine who I sold a pair of binoculars to. His Instagram account is Four Point Outdoors, and he killed a couple of studs this year, like just super impressive animals. He's probably more qualified to talk about hunting blacktail than I'll ever be. But with blacktail, you're going to run a strong trail cam game. You are going to do a lot of still hunting and your hunting days to hunting success ratio is going to be incredibly high. I would argue the highest out of all, you know, possibly all the big game species, except for maybe something like sheep. Um, I would spend an average of 20 to 25 days a, a year day hunting blacktail 
to kill one deer. Um, it has not taken me that many days once I figured out what I was doing to kill mule deer or elk, depending on the circumstances. But they are incredibly nocturnal. Um, they are incredibly quiet. Um, the density numbers are not particularly high. They're a very hard animal to kill. I'm very proud of, of all the blacktail that I've killed for that reason. So, so blacktail, British Columbia, for the most part, I'm going still hunting. A quick recap for people who don't know what still hunting is. It's a bit of a counterintuitive term because you do not stay still. You walk, should be called walk hunting, but it's essentially walking incredibly slowly while constantly scanning the surroundings for movement or antlers. And you literally like walk two to three steps, look around, look around, walk another one to two steps. Like you really, it's painful. Like it's so slow, it's painful. The key to successful still hunting in my experience is that you have to find your hot spots first. Like you can't just start still hunting from the truck because it'll be noon and you'll have gone 300 yards and there's not even any deer around. So why are you walking like an idiot? So you, it requires legwork first. That's why your trail game, that's why your trail cam game has to be particularly strong with blacktail because you need to spend that preseason scouting time looking for the hot spots. Where are the rubs? Where are the honey holes? Where are the traffic jams? Where are they moving on a regular basis? Now they're not patternable like whitetail, but you will be able to find these locations, either close to bedding areas or close to feeding areas or close to travel corridors where there is a higher likelihood of regularly running into a deer. You want to kind of bust ass to get to those locations. And that, that might be a square mile. It might be a couple hundred yards. It might be the, the whole side of a ridge. I mean, there's really no definition as to how big those areas could be. But you'll know it when you're in it because the sign is thick. You want to get to those areas as quickly as possible, ideally before first light. And then you want to be still hunting in those areas looking for blacktail deer. So there's blacktail deer primary uh, method of killing. Mule deer, again, there's a, a whole bunch of different ways to approach this, but I would argue for mule deer, it's primarily spot and stalk. That being said, Montana, two years ago, um, that that buck over there on the wall behind me, um, and even though he has an arrow on his antlers, that's just, a, it's waiting for a bear to come back that I that I took with that from the taxidermist. I actually shot that deer with a rifle. And when I shot that deer with a rifle, I was essentially still hunting and I bumped him. It wasn't even really still hunting. I was kind of like slowly walking up the hill and I just bumped him out of his bed and I kind of followed him around a bit and I shot him. Um, so it's definitely not, so spot and stalk is definitely not the only method that you're going to take mule deer, but I would argue it's the most popular and it's the most effective. Here's another thing that I will add to this. Any time that I can glass any situation, that's going to be my first kind of go-to strategy. And the reason for that is efficiency. I can cover way more ground with my glass than I can on my feet. So I'm going to try and glass whenever possible, as much as possible. 
But there could be limiting factors. Like, for example, in British Columbia, it's the vegetation. There's so many fucking trees. You can't glass anything for the most part anyways, unless you're up in the alpine looking for sheep or goats. Um, so, yeah, general spot and stock practices are going to be get to the highest location that you can that has the most commanding view of the terrain that you think has the highest likelihood to hold deer and then sit there for as long as you can and glass as long as you can. I think there's an argument to be made to like for little micro movements. Like if you're sitting out on a little kind of pinnacle, I think there's a strong argument to be made that every 20 minutes you could stand up, walk 10 or 15 yards and set your glass back up. I think by taking minor differences in perspective, you can see different angles and you can see different new shapes will pop up that you wouldn't have recognized before. However, I think it's really important that you you stay there uncomfortably long. Like, don't just sit down for 20 minutes, glass an entire basin and be like, nope, nothing, off to the next ridge. I think you really have to be kind of diligent about how long you look. Now, that being said, and this is only something that now I'm getting better at. I used to grid everything all the time. When you start something new, you t- kind of tend to err on the the side of caution. Like I wanted to grid everything because I thought everything held an equal chance of holding a deer. That is not true. There are areas in the mountains that have a much higher chance of holding deer. Take Arizona, for example. When you're looking down, like the washes, high probability areas, the little um, edges of, of canyons, high probability. Any area that has shade, high probability. So the longer you start to hunt different species, the more you learn where those high probability areas are. Now what I do when I spot and stalk is I get up to the hill and normally while I'm standing, unless I'm worried about being skylined, I will take my my binos probably on a tripod and I will quickly scan. And when I say quickly, I mean, I'll do the whole basin in like five to seven minutes And I will quickly scan those high percentage areas and I'm going to ignore all the rest. Ideally, I'm doing this at first light. I'm going to look for all my edge terrain. I'm going to look for everything in shade. I'm going to look for anything that's rolling over or has particularly nice feed, any transition areas, any creeks. And I'm going to glass those up first and like pretty quickly because it's first light. The animals are likely going to be moving. Hopefully the sun has kind of just started to light up the hillside. So I'm going to get that really nice kind of reflective property off the hides and antlers. Like if there's something there, I'm going to see it as long as it goes in my glass. So I will scan those kind of high density or high probability areas first. If I don't see anything, then it's like, okay, time to party. Then I'm like, backpack gets unpacked. I'm going to set up my stool. I'm like going to really settle in. I'm going to get out the spotting scope Then what I'm going to do is start to grid out the rest of the areas. For the most part, I like to grid and then normally reverse grid the entire basin. And I probably do that twice. And then every like 10, 15 minutes, I'll probably take a break from the gridding and just do a rescan of those high probability areas. Not only does this kind of increase your likelihood of finding an animal, it also just gives you a nice psychological break. Because I'll notice sometimes like, You've been reading a book and you get to the bottom of the page and you're like, fuck, 
I don't remember anything that I just read. It's because your brain can go through this like unconscious process of, of appearing to read a page, but if you're not intentionally engaged with it, you're not actually recording any of that data. That same shit happens glassing. You'll be glassing, 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 and then you realize you can't remember a single thing that happened over the last five minutes, and you probably passed three deer. So anything that you can do that will increase your focus or give you quick little micro breaks to recenter your focus, I highly recommend it. I remember when I first started doing engineering layout, this guy whose nickname was Pissy Disher, um, he was a bit of a dick, but he was a really good teacher. He owned the company. He was the guy who hired me, and it was the first day. Um, I was probably still hungover. It was bad. And he takes me into the woods and we're, we're walking along and it's like, I don't know, nine 30, 10 in the morning. I'm probably wet and cold. I'm in the like far ass end of Vancouver Island, like way past Holberg and the asshole of the world. And he stops and he turns to me and he goes, close your eyes. So I close my eyes and he said, I want you to explain to me the last 150 meters that you walked in extreme detail. I want to know what the leaves look like. I want to know what kind of trees there were. How many creeks did we cross? What did the rocks look like? What type of moss was there? Like this dude fucking went off. And I was like, I got nothing, nothing. We could have been in a fucking parking lot for all I knew. I was like, what kind of rocks were there? I'm like, I'm just trying to stay alive, man. I'm not... And it really, and he used to do that shit to us all the time, man. And he never caught me unaware like that ever again. I might not have always had the best answers, but I had an answer. And he taught me the difference between like being a passive visitor in a landscape and being actively engaged. Like you can sit there and you can go through the motions when you're doing layout and you can just like walk around and kind of look at stuff. You can sit down and you can kind of like move your binoculars around with your eyeballs in them and scan some territory. That's one system. Or you can execute extreme focus. You can become engaged with your landscape and you can consciously record all of the data coming in through your, your kind of visual sense. Those are two completely different activities. They require two completely different sets of cognitive prowess. One is extremely taxing. One is like a fucking vacation. You're trying to get into that second mindset when you're glassing. And it, it, your mind is like not a big fan of that because it's hard. And so it's constantly like tricking you and like doing these little things to help you stop paying attention so that you can take a break. So that would be my biggest kind of word of advice around glassing is like be hard on yourself. If you can't remember everything that you've seen for the last 30 seconds in your binoculars, you weren't paying attention. And if you weren't paying attention, you probably didn't see a deer, even if there is one. So trying to stay focused and engaged is probably the single most important part of spot and stock hunting. So wrapping up the mule deer thing, because you I mean, you could be archery, you could be rifle, you could be a bunch of things, but primarily spot and stock and then... If I had more details about particular circumstances, I could give more examples or I could give more advice on, on kind of how to close the deal. But the important part is that for mule deer, spot and stock is by far the most important method. The last animal I'm going to close out with is elk. I have hunted elk a variety of ways. I have still hunted them. I've called for them. 
I've done spot and stock. The most success I've had by far is like classic calling and aggressive calling. Um, and I'm not going to get into like tips and tricks. Cause like, I'm not an elk expert. You can go, you know, watch guys like Dirk Durham or I don't know. I'm not a really big fan of, of Corey Jacobson, but whatever you can watch his shit. Um, there's lots of guys you can follow for like specific elk hunting tactics. Not only do I find calling the most successful form of elk hunting, I also find it the most fun and I want to do the type of hunting that I want to do because I enjoy it. So that's how I choose to hunt elk. I try to go to locations where that's a favorable strategy or that strategy produces favorable results. And I try and stay away from areas where that strategy doesn't work particularly well. But as far as different tactics for different animals with a bunch of caveats in there, there you go. That's my still hunting for blacktail, spot and stock for mule deer, calling for elk. Okay, my buddy, Sean, big up, Sean. We've uh, done some coos deer hunting together in Arizona. He's a great guy. He's from California. He says, how easy is it for Americans to come to Canada and hunt DIY? I will tell you exactly how easy is it is. It's fucking impossible. Not only can you not come to Canada and hunt DIY, I can't even go to another province and hunt DIY. My country is so fucking ass backwards that as a Canadian citizen, I am not allowed to go to another province and hunt. Other than certain BC wildlife management practices, which boggle my mind, it is probably the single most frustrating thing I find with wildlife management in general in Canada. It really pisses me off. Now, as a BC resident, I can bring a friend in to hunt uh, by filling out an accompanying to hunt form. Uh, but I cannot bring in an American. I'm not allowed. So the only way for an American to hunt in Canada, full stop, is to hire a guide. Straight and simple. I apologize. Most Canadians like it because it keeps the pressure down. I don't. Pressure doesn't really bother me. I think you should be able to have faith in your own hunting capabilities. And I think if you have responsible conservation and wildlife management, the amount of tags given out should appropriately match up with the amount of game available for harvest. And so you shouldn't really worry about who has access to the hunting grounds because the access to tags should limit the pressure, not just general access. Mark Swagner asks updates to arrow setup and reasoning for choosing each component. And I'm pretty sure there's another archery question in here. Yeah, Frigoff says, arrow spine weight for bows. Keep up the awesome work, bro. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, so I'm going to address both these with one answer. With the qualification that either next week or the week after, I'm going to do an entire episode on how to build your own arrows, where I will get much more in depth on all of the issues that I'm going to reference right now. The reason I'm not sure which week it's going to be is that I'm really trying hard to do the Hilleberg uh, tent gear shootout. So I'm going to be setting up the Acto and the Solo side by side and recording that podcast with video to really dig in and, and decide which tent I'm going to take on my goat hunt and try and show you guys what a six foot one dude looks like inside of each of those tents. And that's kind of weather is the limiting factor right now. I live in Vancouver. It has been pissing a 
you know, biblical proportions for the last multiple weeks. And it basically, it kind of led up today, um, but I didn't, I wasn't able to take a whole half day to go do that. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that if it's sunny, I'm going to do the tent review first. If it's not, I'll do the arrow setup um, podcast. So um, I want to take a quick scan at these questions again. So updates to arrow setup and arrow spine weight. Okay. I subscribe to the heavy balanced arrow philosophy. Let me back up. There's kind of three primary and I'm going to, everything that I'm about to talk to talk about applies to compound shooters. I'm not saying some of it doesn't also apply to trad shooters, but I'm not a trad shooter. I don't know shit about trad bows. I'm not going to talk about trad bows. There are basically three philosophies of arrow construction. You have your light, fast arrow construction, your heavy balanced arrow construction, and your high to extreme FOC or front of center construction. And an FOC arrow tends to be heavy, but it doesn't tend to be balanced. Let me put some numbers to that. I would say anything under 450 grains tip to tail, I would consider a light arrow. Everything from 450 to 650, we're going to put in that heavy arrow category, but really I'm talking north of 500. And then I'm not going to get into a detailed conversation of front of center. Just know that it is the percentage of the weight of the arrow that is in front of like the lineal center of the arrow. Like if you, a 26 inch arrow, the middle is going to be 13 inches. All of the weight to the front of that 13 inch mark would be considered its front of center weight. High front of center, I would argue starts, let's just say 16%. Extreme front of center starts at like 18 to 20%. Like good, solid, moderate FOC, I would say is in the like 12 to 14% range, 13, 14% range. I have done all three. I started out as a fast shooter. I moved into a high FOC shooter and shot the Valkyrie system. Now I am a heavy balanced shooter. In my opinion, one of the single biggest determinants of penetration of an arrow is arrow flight. There's a lot of reasons why an FOC arrow should penetrate better, but because so much of the weight is up front, if you start to get tail drag on that arrow and that arrow's not going perfectly straight when it hits the animal, you will get friction from the shaft of the arrow entering into the body. Um, They're also a bitch to tune. Uh, I think a lot of high and extreme FOC guys are trad guys. And I think the math just works differently when you're shooting out of a 55 or 60 pound bow than when you're shooting out of an 80 pound bow. Because I had what was on paper supposed to be the perfect arrow for my 80 pound bow. And it was a fucking nightmare. The thing would shoot corkscrews and it was like, I'd slow mow it. It never really recovered out of paradox. Like it was, it's just... Anything done at the extreme creates like weird outlier results. And so for penetration and tunability, I prefer a heavy, well-balanced arrow. Another reason that I'm bringing this up is that when you ask a question about spine, 
I don't want to say spine doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter nearly as much as it used to. Mostly because of the quality of construction of arrows, but also the current trend is towards heavier arrows. So most people wanted to go with the lightest spine possible. So the higher the spine, the more flexible the arrow. So a 400 spine arrow is more flexible than a 250 spine arrow, which means you would need like a 50 pound bow to shoot a 400 spine arrow. And I shoot a 250 spine arrow out of my 80 pound bow. More powerful bow requires a lower spine number. People were always trying to use the highest spine number possible because it meant their arrow would be the lightest possible. So you were literally trying to figure out what's the lightest I can go, what's the weakest spine I can go before shit starts to just go wonky and then there's your magic spot. That doesn't really exist anymore, at least not for guys like me because I, I shoot a 600 grain arrow. I don't give a fuck from like a, a a weight perspective. In fact, I want a heavier arrow, so I'm more likely to go for a lower spine. The reason I bring this up is that there are far fewer negative outcomes from being overspined than underspined. If you are underspined, it will not tune. It just won't. And what, what is essentially happening is the arrow that you are using is too weak for the amount of force that you are applying to it. So it just won't tune. So I always say when you're unsure over spine, you know, like if it's 200 or 250, go 200. If it's 350 or 300, go 300. There's no noticeable difference between being a slightly bit too stiff other than you're going to have a slightly heavier arrow. Um, now, if you can get the perfect spine, okay, go perfect. But most of us can't because we're not like, bear shaft tuning and cutting eighths of an inch off each of our shafts until we get the perfect tune. Like it just doesn't work like that. For the most part, you're going to want to follow a tuning chart. So it will tell you based on your bow at your weight at that arrow, what spine you should be. I then always go up one spine to account for the greater point weight. So I run 175 points. So I run 175 grains up front. So that means I'm putting on a 50 grain collar system, an insert system, and then I'm using a 125 grain broadhead. Most tuning charts or spine charts will be run for 100 grain broadheads. So it would tell me that for my setup, I need a 300 spine, but I know I'm going to be putting 75 more grains up front. So I'm going to drop to a 250 spine. So that's what I shoot. I shoot a 250 spine, Black Eagle Rampage. I have four AAE Max Stealth uh, 2.6s out back for, for fletching. And I have the Iron Will component system, 50 grains up front, which is the hit insert and the collar. And then I run an Iron Will 125 grain solid broadhead. It is a fucking missile. Every single animal I have shot with this setup, I've gotten a pass through on. It blows through animals. It's devastating. Um, and I've got a 12 ring out to 55 yards on a mule deer. So the accuracy is unbeatable. I've gone through a whole bunch of different stuff. If you go back on my YouTube video, my most recent arrow build video actually had me using the Black Eagle focus components. After testing them thoroughly, I don't like them. I found I had tunability issues with them. 
And I also found they have this little kind of screw that holds the whole thing together and it would consistently come loose. And it was just like, I was just sick of dealing with it. I then transitioned over to the iron wheel components and I've had nothing but success. So let me do a quick recap here. I'd overspine a little bit to be safe. I'd buy really high quality arrows. Uh, Easton Axis, Black Eagle Rampage are really good. I've also had issues with super skinnies like the X Impacts. You should get better penetration, but I find when an arrow gets that skinny, again, the physics seem to go a bit weird, but I, I'm also not the most educated tuner in the world. So that just could be me, but I like going with, um, I think it's a 2.04 diameter, the Rampage and the Axis. Those are kind of my two favorite arrows right now. I'm sure Gold Tip has an analogous product. I just don't know what it is off the top of my head. And then go with moderate point weight. So I wouldn't go like 250 or 300 up front. I wouldn't try and go for a super light arrow. I'm not a big FOC guy. I would go with like anywhere between 125 and 200 grains up front, depending on the overall weight of your setup. I want my arrow when everything is said and done to be between 550 and 600 grains. That's the entire arrow. Because out of my 80 pound bow, that's going to give me about 270 to 280 feet per second. Gives me a quiet bow, gives me a ton of momentum and just devastating power when that thing slams into the side of an animal. So like I said, we'll do an entire arrow building episode in the next couple of weeks, but there's some initial food for thought on, on that particular question. Warren asks, I want to hear about your e-scouting, how you plan a hunt without ever seeing the country. This is a really good question and it happens a lot. I will say I haven't taken the course, but I've heard my buddy, uh, Mark, I can't remember his last name. Uh, his Instagram handle is treeline pursuits has an e-scouting course that is phenomenal. And I don't think it's that much money. It's like a hundred bucks or something. So if you are a total noob with e-scouting, I would recommend getting his course. However, I can give you some basic pointers without, you know, spending an entire podcast on it, which maybe we should do, but it would definitely have to be a video podcast because I'd be using a lot of software. So in general, my main tools are going to be Google earth and Onyx. In addition to that, there are some other mapping systems that tend to have slightly better imagery. I could be using fat maps. I could be using the new go hunt because it has a 3d mode for all intents and purposes. I start out high level first. So I normally don't even start this process until I've decided upon an area. Now, when I'm trying to pick a unit, I might do some high level overview to see which unit is more appropriate, but let's try and limit our conversation. And let's say I've got a tag in my pocket. And I've narrowed it down to like my 20, 30 square mile area, like my unit or my little section of a unit that I'm going to be spending most of my time hunting. Now, what do I do? First, I just do like a 3D Google Earth scan um, because I'm looking for just general topographical information. Like how crazy is this area? How vegetated is it? How wet is it? Are there a lot of creeks and rivers? Can I freely walk around or am I going to be limited to certain corridors and have to back out and start again? Like there's a lot of nuances there. So first I just do a high level scan and then I start to think about a bit of a game plan. This is going to be different for every hunt. If it's a sheep hunt, I could be planning like a plotting 
a single 12-day route. If it's an elk bivy hunt, what I'm going to be doing is looking for small three to four-day loops that I can do in a bunch of different areas. And I might even plot a bunch of single-day loops. But when it comes to the actual mapping, I will literally draw the lines in Google Earth or whatever platform you want to use that I want to walk. And I'll take waypoints everywhere I think there's something interesting. Like, oh, this is a glassing knob or, oh, this is a a good feeding area or, oh, this looks like good bedding terrain. And I will plot, I know approximately how far I can walk in given terrain and I will plot reasonable paths given the amount of days that I have. You know, I can walk, you know, 10 miles a day is, is not a bad day for me. So if I'm going to go in for four days, I could plot a 30 to 40 mile loop. Now, that being said, I still got to get an animal out. So I'm not going to go 20 straight miles in and 20 straight miles out if I'm going after something like an elk. Now, if I was going after a deer or a sheep, I'd probably do something like that. So I plot the path. I look for areas of interest and areas of interest are going to be dictated by the species. Like elk like different things than mule deer. And with elk, I'm looking for calling setups. And with mule deer, I'm looking for spot and stock setups. So the question you need to ask yourself is like, where is there a higher probability that this animal would exist? And then go look for those types of areas on your map plot them all on there, and then look for a reasonable path where you can hit as many of those as possible within your allotted time frame. You do that whole process, you get everything on Google Earth, then what I do is I export it all from Google Earth as a KML, and I import it into Onyx. In my experience, Onyx is the most reliable smartphone mapping platform. I'm sure other people have favorites. I don't fucking care. I've used Onyx for over five years. It has never once let me down. Not one time has it crashed. Not one time have I opened it up and my points been missing. Not one time has something not imported. I mean, never. It has been perfect. And when I'm dealing with mission critical information like mapping, I'm looking for perfect, not good enough. So I stick with Onyx. I I migrate everything from Google Earth onto Onyx, organize it all on my desktop so it's all color-coded, named appropriately, and then I update my phone. I then download the local high-quality background data onto my phone, and then that phone is my lifeline for the trip. That's how I get around in there. So that's my general approach to e-scouting. Now, we could go animal by animal or terrain by terrain, and it would get way more complicated, and we'd spend a lot more time on it, but those are the high notes. All right, my buddy Ethical Carnivore says, has becoming the incredible bulk hindered your hunting ability compared to before? So some of you may not follow me on Instagram, but I recently posted posted a progress photo, and in the last 17 months, I've put on 52 pounds. So... August 2019, I weighed 209 pounds, and December 2020, I weighed 261 pounds. So I've put on 52 pounds in 17 months, and I caught some flack for like, you know, how are you still hiking, and why are you purposefully, you know, hindering your hiking performance and stuff. Um, So I want to own that part of it up front. 
I am consciously accepting a reduction in performance for pursuing multiple goals at the same time because I get really bored easily. If all I ever did was hunt, that just wouldn't do it for me. Now, if I didn't have kids and a wife and I was financially independent and I could literally hunt 10 months out of the year, then yes, just hunting all the time would be enough, but I'm not. And I need another hobby to keep me sane while I'm at home. So for me, that's lifting. Um, and I need some type of purpose to my hobby. I can't just go to lift to lift. I need to like either be trying to grow or get strong, or there's got to be a goal that I'm working towards in order for me to stay engaged. So there has definitely been a somewhat of a reduction in my hiking performance. I have taken the measures necessary to kind of mitigate the negative implications on my hunting. So, um, I still hike a lot with weighted backpack. This was the first off season. So when you're in bodybuilding off season is like your bulking kind of, uh, time, your cycle. And my latest bulk started kind of like mid October, well, early October. And this was the first one where I've kept my hiking in the whole time. I used to actually get rid of the weighted backpack cardio because I was trying to reduce my caloric expenditure. When you're trying to put on weight, you want to reduce the amount of calories that you're burning so those calories can be used to build tissue. This time I approached it differently. I'm like, I'd rather eat more food to compensate for the extra calorie burns, but keep my cardio up. So I've actually been surprised at how well my hiking performance has stayed despite the fact that I've put on so much weight. I don't have a whole lot more to add on this other than the fact that if you're going to pursue multiple goals, you're going to take a hit to performance, but I think you can mitigate that through different strategies. Um, and it all comes down to not being afraid of hard work. Like if, if my hiking was, was impeded to that large of a degree, it's probably because I'm a lazy fuck and I'm not spending enough time in the mountains actually hiking with a backpack on. All right. Adam Killam says, if I want to hunt elk in BC, how do I choose a region and area to go? For starters, except for the populations on the island, you kind of really only have two main pockets of elk in British Columbia. There's exceptions, obviously, but I'm talking for the most part. So the question you need to ask yourself is, do you want to go to the Kootenays or do you want to go to the Northern Rockies? Because those are the two biggest populations. Something else I found very interesting, I'm pretty sure at last count, if you add up all the elk in British Columbia, you get somewhere between 40 and 60,000. And there's over a quarter million in Colorado. I think there's 150,000 in Idaho. So you need to prepare yourself for the fact that the elk density in British Columbia is unbelievably lower than most of the United States densities of elk. I say all that just to prepare you for the fact that even a great region or unit for elk in British Columbia is kind of a shit region compared to most of the regions in the state. There's pockets, but the densities are just not of the same order of magnitude. And that's going to kind of influence the next piece of advice I give. So I have hunted elk in BC multiple years. I have never taken an elk in British Columbia. I've hunted on Haida Gwaii multiple years, and I've hunted in the Northern Rockies multiple years. 
I've I've seen them. I've been around them a couple times, but I've never really like cracked that particular code. And here's the hard truth. Unless you, your, your family has been hunting an area for multiple years, or you've got a hunt camp with like locations from good buddies, or you have a jet boat or horses, hunting elk in British Columbia is incredibly difficult and a very low success rate. It can still be done. I do still plan on doing it, but here's my piece of advice. Take a multi-year approach to hunting elk in British Columbia. And this kind of goes against a lot of what I believe in, but I think you're better off to choose a large area and spend many years getting to know it because you're going to be able to cross areas off the map. You're going to go back in for your second and third year with more knowledge. If you were going to Wyoming or Colorado, I would have different advice. I think there are ways that you can put yourself in high probability situations on year one. Because of the lack of data in British Columbia, I think that's a much more difficult thing to do. And I think you need to spend more years with boots on the ground in order to accomplish the same thing. So my recommendation is go where you want to go because the quality of elk hunting, I think, could be said to be similar in either the Kootenays or the Northern Rockies. But if one of those regions are closer or you've got family nearby or you like the topography or the weather, pick the area where you want to go and plan on going there every September for a few years and like figuring that shit out, covering a ton of ground, um, talking to people where possible, although that rarely produces much of a result and try and get to know it. That's really the only tip I have. and. I will try, you know, hopefully one of these years take an elk in British Columbia. And if I find out any more successful tips, I will pass them on to you. Uh, my buddy Brandon wanted to know if I was going down to Arizona this month. So I normally hunt coos deer in Arizona every January. I love it. My wife was really excited to go down there this year and just have a vacation while I went hunting. And because of COVID, I couldn't go. That was actually the impetus for me to do the goat hunt in February. So I will not be going to Arizona this month. Breaks my heart, but that's COVID life. Up next, backcountry unknown. If you could only bring one lens for your camera, what would you bring? I do only bring one lens for my camera. And I would say if you are a novice and you're concerned about weight, get a single 24 mil lens. It's going to do the job. It's not going to be the best at anything, but it's going to be good enough at everything you need it to do. Now I'm primarily video. So that may, that answer may be different if you are primarily into photos. I do take a lot of photos. I'd say I'm like 70, 30 video and photos and the 24 works great for both. I have recently switched to the Sigma art lens 24 to 70 F 2.8. And the reason I did that is I was 85 yards from a caribou and it looks like a speck of dirt with the 24 mil. And I realized that my inability to at least have some zoom capabilities was reducing my ability to adequately tell the story. Now, the new lens is a full pound heavier, which is a lot more glass to have on the end of your camera. Um, the quality is, is quite high. I'm actually surprised. I thought I was going to take a reduction moving from a prime lens to a zoom lens, but to my eye, I can't even really see a difference. So if, if you're not scared of carrying a little bit more weight, I would recommend a 24 to 70. And in my opinion, the best option on the market right now is that Sigma art F 2.8.
And I shoot on a Sony a7 III for people who are curious. All right, Jay Frost says, pre-workout beverage, aminos, BCAAs, powder protein supplements, or eat all the required amounts. Um, I'm going to say, yes, use supplements. If you've got the money, it's more convenient. I think the things are in higher doses. I think it's hard to get everything from food. And when we're talking about peri-workout nutrition, peri-workout nutrition being the term that you would apply to kind of everything that goes in your body from one to two hours before you train to to during you train to one to two hours after you train. That window specifically, I think requires exogenous supplementation other than food. I believe in pre-workouts. I like pre-workouts. I'm a bit of a stim freak. I like kind of, yeah, heavy stim pre-workouts. I don't think you need to use them all the time and not everybody's into them. There's essentially three areas a pre-workout will affect you. Energy, mental focus, and a pump or like or like nutrient transportation. So the ingredients you want to look for when you're going for a pump product, you're looking for at least six grams of citrulline. Um, and there's a variety of like energy and focus products. I like a three in one. So it's got like a lot of caffeine and a lot of other stimulants. And then it's got a ton of citrulline, some beta alanine. Maybe it has creatine. Maybe it doesn't. I don't really care. I can always add that afterwards, but I like a high end kick you in the fucking teeth pre-workout. Now intra-workout I prefer essential amino acids to branch chain amino acids. I could get into the science, but just trust me, they're more effective. Not as many companies have them yet, but give it another year or two. But if you're, if you're going to buy an intra-workout drink, get essential amino acids, which is all nine amino acids, not branch chain amino acids, which is only three of the amino acids. Now, I used to take additional carbs in my intra-workout and in my post-workout shake. I'd use cyclic dextrin, highly branched cyclic dextrin to be specific. I have since taken that out of my regime. I actually found myself, I kept getting bloated during workouts. And then I would drink my protein shake afterwards and I'd get even more bloated. At first I thought it was the glutamine and I thought it was a bunch of other stuff. And then I just did a week where all I drank was water during my workouts and just protein isolate after the workouts. And all the bloating went away. And so I started slowly putting things back in. And it turned out that for me, I really get bloated from highly branched cyclic dextrin. I don't even know if that's the case all the time or just when I'm undergoing like extreme physical stress, like a workout. Like, for example, I can't eat after a leg workout because my system gets so jacked up. So that I'm going to leave that as a personal preference. I, as long as you have eaten a good meal within two hours before you train, and you're going to get some carbs into your system within an hour and a half, two hours after you train, I don't think intracarbs are a necessity. However, they are a luxury and they're nice. So if you, if you have the money and they don't bloat you and you're looking to put on size or you're looking to increase performance, I think intracarbs are a good thing. Now, post-workout recovery I take two scoops of whey isolate along with five grams of creatine and three grams of taurine. I used to also put glutamine in there, but I found I was having a bit of a stomach, stomach sensitivity to the glutamine, so I've since taken it out. Now, I take a shitload of other health supplements and other performance-enhancing additives, for lack of a better description, that I'm not going to get into right now, 
But that's a brief overview of my peri-workout nutrition. I also think another shake or two throughout the day of protein, if you're trying to put on size, you should be hitting at least 1.25 grams of protein per pound of body weight. I'm a 260-pound dude. I should be getting 300 grams of protein. That can be tough some days to get just through meat. So if I have to do a couple of shakes throughout the day to hit that number, I will. I don't think there's any anything wrong with supplementing your protein intake with some shakes throughout the day. So the next question just says stocking. Um, I talked about it a little bit when we we're doing a kind of our methods conversation. And maybe I'll just, I'm not the world's best stalker and I'm still learning how to do it. I'm, maybe I just think of some tips. Um, you always want to keep your eye on the animal when you can, um, because there is very little area that an animal can be when it's not going to see you some kind, but if it's put its head down to eat or turned completely around, you can be a bit more aggressive, take advantage of those opportunities. Um, another tip is before you leave on a stock, if you're going to have to like lose sight of the animal, go a couple hundred yards, a mile, whatever, and then refind it. Take pictures before you leave through the phone scope and use your phone app and like draw on the picture where certain things are. Then when you get over there, you can pull the picture out and kind of reorient yourself. When you are stalking highly tuned up animals like coos deer and axis and stuff, slow is 10 times slower than you think it is. Um, yeah, it's painfully slow. I, I wish I could explain, but they are so tuned up. Anything turns them on. The last thing I will add is what I was wearing when I was able to smoke my mule deer in Arizona is a pair of stocking boots called Sneak Tech. And they're essentially these Berber fleece slip-ons with these bungee cords that go on over your hiking boots. And they did a really good job of muffling all the ground noise, I highly recommend those. I'll try and dig in a little bit deeper to this topic, maybe on a future episode. All right, Nicholas says, wall tents. I don't have a whole lot of experience with wall tents. So I did a couple of hunts when I was like 12 and 13 with my old man in Ontario and we were in wall tents. And then I stayed in one when I hunted some elk up the Musqua in 2017. I've never owned one. I've never gone through the, the process of purchasing one. So I don't know what to look for. I will say this. I was pretty anti-wall tent. Like I'm a backcountry lightweight guy until I spent 10 days hunting elk in the Northern Rockies this year. And you see these dudes with these wall tent setups and it's like, holy shit, that would be nice, man. Like there's just so much room in there and everything's dry. And it's like, I get it now with the weather up there, the way it is. It's almost a necessity. That being said, you also need some type of like really robust transportation mechanism. Like I said earlier in the podcast, if you do not have a jet boat or horses, a wall tent's not really doing you that much good because you're going to have to set it up beside a road and you're going to be hiking multiple miles every day before you even get close to terrain that could prove productive. So I guess I could just say they have their time and place but you need to make sure that you've got the equipment to be able to take full advantage of them. Uh, Nicholas's second question, how do you keep your meat cool on a solo backpack hunt and how do you transport it all? So this is a really good question. It, it, the funny thing is it doesn't matter as much on a solo hunt. 
because when you're on a group hunt, you might fill your tag and then you might decide to wait in the mountains for three or four days while your buddy feels his tag. So you're going to have to hang your meat in order to like stick around when you're on a solo hunt. There's really no reason to stick around once you've killed your animal. So you should be able to head out right away. However, let's look at the possibility where you might have to do multiple trips and those might multiple trips might take you multiple days, depending on how deep you are. So here's the important thing to keep in mind with meat. I would argue air circulation is almost more important than temperature and covering the meat from flies, having the ability to lay eggs on it would be a close second. So especially if you're solo hunting and you're carrying the meat out yourself, first thing you're going to do is bone everything out. And I bone it out immediately. The places that rot on animals first are near the hip sockets. And that's because those bones maintain a lot of the heat and those where those hip sockets are, are the furthest from any heat evacuation point. Like there's more muscle and more meat and more hide between the surface and those locations than anywhere else on the animal. So I always skin the animal as quickly as possible. I'm usually using the gutless method. It's usually laying on the ground and I'll try and go after the hindquarters first because that's where most of the heat is. I'm going to get the entire hindquarters off and then I'm going to debone the hindquarters immediately. Once those hindquarters are deboned, I'm going to lay them out on like a, like a garbage bag or something clean on the ground. Once I get all the meat laid out like that, the other thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to be uh, constantly flipping the meat while I'm processing the rest of the meat so that every 20 or 30 minutes it's getting flipped over. Once that's kind of all there, I'm going to then load the meat up in game bags. I'm going to try and make sure there's no portions of meat that are trapped in the middle. So if I'm putting an entire hind quarter in a game bag, I want to make sure that it like didn't roll up at the bottom or I'm not stuffing another piece of meat in there because I want the ability for the meat to breathe through the game bag. If I am... Now, one game bag is always going to kind of have your leftovers, right? Like if you're doing an elk, you're probably going to have five big game bags. You're going to have hind quarter, hind quarter, front quarter, front quarter, and then your leftovers, which are going to be your back straps, neck roasts, rib meat, all that kind of stuff. So with that leftover, the other thing that you could do is you could split those components into your two front quarter bags, depending on the size of the animal. In that case, you've got two bags that you kind of need to be more manual with. I will open up those game bags every eight to 10 hours, depending on the circumstances. And I will pull whichever meat is in the center out to the outside. And I will kind of like rotate the meat throughout the bag so that it all has a chance to be hit by the side. Now, as long as it's not super hot and there's some airflow, that meat can hang in those game bags for quite some time before you need to worry about spoilage. So at that point, you can start making trips to the truck. Now, the other thing that I do is the, one of the last things I do before I head to the trailhead is I fill my truck up on gas and I fill both coolers. I always bring two coolers and I fill both coolers to the brim with ice. The less excess air remaining in your coolers, the longer that ice will stay frozen to the point where I'll even put blankets in there. If I don't have enough ice, I'll fill that up with something just so there's no dead air. When I get to the 
to the truck with my meat, I will normally, if I've gone with the four bank game bag method, put two game bags in each cooler. I do this on purpose because the one game bag is kind of sitting on top of the other game bag and both of the game bags will be facing down. Then depending on how far my drive is, sometimes it takes me two to three days to get home if I was a really far away hunt. Every eight to 10 hours, I will pull the two coolers out, dump the excess water, and I will flip the game bags. I'll bring the bottom one to the top, the top one to the bottom, and then I will flip them over in that sequence as well. And this is less about air circulation than it is about water. I don't want portions of the meat sitting in the melted ice for too long. Now, I've done this for as long as five days before, and I've hung meat for three to four days, and I've never lost meat. So I think if you're intentional and careful and, and, and just pay attention to what you're doing, there's no reason as a solo hunter you should ever you should ever lose meat. The rare exception would be if you had a, bad, a badly placed shot and it took you a while to find an animal and some of the meat soured before you found him. That, that could happen. All right. Um, my buddy Josh sent a message, and he wanted to know about mule deer hunting in the States. And just this last question, let's give it a bit of context here. He's primarily a rifle hunter. He's a Canadian citizen. He gets to do maybe two big hunts a year. And he's more worried about having the hunt of a lifetime than he is about getting to hunt every year. He'd be happy to hunt mule deer here at home most years. And then maybe every 10 to 15 years go down South. So that is a very specific strategy. So I think for me, option number one is probably going to be Utah. Utah is a heavily, you know, rifle centric state. It's going to let you hunt animals in the rut with a rifle, uh, which is, which is beneficial. Now it's going to take a very long time to draw that tag, but it's going to be an astounding hunt when you do. I've always been interested in region G in Wyoming because it's a really famous mule deer region. But to be totally honest, when you look at the seasons, the only time you can really go in there also kind of crosses over with the elk rut. And I like hunting elk almost more than anything. So I've kind of taken it off my radar but a non-resident can go hunt region G with eight points. And it is, it should be a phenomenal hunt. Some years are better than others. Um, so I think Wyoming region G would be another area that I would focus on. And then I would have to go the strip in Arizona. Now he did say 10, 15 years in his email. And to be honest, both Utah and the strip, you're looking at like 20, 25 years to probably draw those tags as a non-resident. So maybe I'm being a little bit too aggressive with my recommendations. But here's the thing. Most of my recommendations in my How to Hunt in the States podcast were based on like average Joe hunters who just wanted to increase opportunity. I don't even need to get into specific recommendations to give you a better strategy. I would look at Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and Wyoming. And I would look at any unit that requires more than 10 points to draw. Any situation like that is going to produce, has the potential to produce a phenomenal hunt. 
So that would be my recommendation. Now, you could do that through Go Hunt. You could do that through Fishing Game Wildlife. Like there's different ways to to look it up. But if I was looking for like those once in a lifetime type hunts, that would be my approach. The benefit of Wyoming is that you don't have to pay for the license every year. As soon as you get into Utah, Arizona, and Nevada, you're buying a license every single year. So let's say that's 150 bucks. Let's say the application process is another 50 bucks. You're going to pay 200 bucks a year per state just to apply. Do that for 10 years. That's going to be two grand. That's not bad, but if you did it in three states, that's going to be six grand. So be prepared for that. The benefit of Wyoming is that you don't have to buy the license every year. The only thing you got to pay for is the $40 deer preference point. So that would be the benefit of accruing points for a, a really high quality mule deer hunt in Montana. The last area I've never hunted there that you, you know, depending on the style of hunt you want, Eastern Colorado has giant mule deer. Now they are more restrictive with their tags for mule deer in Eastern Colorado than they are for their elk. So it's not the same pressure. So even though I steer clear of Colorado for most of my recommendations, I think this would be the exception to the rule. So I don't know if that's a great answer, Josh, you know, hit me back up. If, if you want some more detailed information, I'm happy to go over with you personally, or even go take a quick look on go hunt and see what some units might be. But I think that's about the best I got for you right now. Thank you, everybody. That was a great episode. Hopefully in another eight, we'll have piled up another kind of set of questions to get into. Coming up next, like I mentioned before, we got the arrow building episode. We got the Hilleberg shootout episode. Tons of great content. We're less than six weeks out from the goat hunt, getting super excited. So there should be lots of training information and cool shit going on on my front. Um, yeah. Thanks as always for the support. If you could give us a quick like, comment, or subscribe on any platform that you're listening, that would greatly help the podcast. Thanks for tuning in.